Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Logan campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. And because legacy is really, really important. And, you know, I'm a, a real observer of life and I love observing uh, new dads. You, you know, you can see new dads, they've got that stunned mullet look like, what just happened? Um, it's really quite an amazing thing. And uh, the awe that comes with being a dad, I will never, ever forget. But who would have thought that, that being a grandparent was even better? Just amazing. It's so much fun. And uh, Nerily and I had some great fun with the, the kids recently. Um, and there's a photo coming up. It should be coming up of us uh, celebrating my birthday up at Cotton Tree um, with the boys. And it was just fantastic. And in September, Nerily and I were away for three weeks in our caravan up at Woodgate. And uh, Beck and Matt and the boys came up uh, for a week. And we just had an absolute blast. And... Uh, uh, Zach caught his first fish, two actually, outfished all of us. Um, and since then, he's been saying, when are we going fishing and camping? Um, and one night, I heard Ben crying, and I said to Nero, that's Ben crying. And she said, don't worry, they'll get up to him. They'll look after him. The story was in the morning that the camper, they left the zip of the camper open so the dog could go in and out. And Benji decided to use that during the middle of the night. And fortunately enough, we had the, a compound fenced in, and so Beck found him outside because he couldn't find his way back to his bed. <laughs> Happened two nights in a row. Um, but with, with the boys, I did a lot of pondering and pondering about my role as a grandfather. That, you know, I want my grandsons, and I know I play a role in this, to become men of character. And not just men of character, but I want them to become men of faith. Men who know God's grace and God's love. And I pray for them every day that that's the case. And I also pray for them every day that God is preparing godly women for them as wives. Because that's the role of a grandparent, is to be praying for those things and having a legacy. As I pondered, I wanted to pick up on a theme about gold. And... Gold is a really amazing thing, and we were watching a movie just the other night, and uh, there was these, you know how in the movies they have the bars of gold on a pallet, and they seem to push it around, and a guy was about to push it out of a plane, and he took um, a, a slab of gold and stuck it in his shirt, and Nerily and I really, really laughed. So coming up should be a picture of uh, gold, and gold in ore, very rarely... For a lot of gold, you find big nuggets, but it normally comes in ore, and then it has to go through a refining process to actually make it into gold bars. And, you know, the refining process is quite detailed because it involves heat and acids and chemicals to actually get pure gold. And, you know, we sing things like, you know, refiner's fire. And sometimes we forget that it's actually the heat of life and the pressure of life that does the refining process. Anyone in their right mind would not pray, God, refine me. That, that's a prayer for blessing that you cannot comprehend. We think blessings are always good things. 
you know, the two blessings that I love to talk about mostly is the, the night that um, Jacob wrestled with God and he's got God by the shirt. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. So God punches him in the crutch and leaves him with a permanent limp. How's that for a blessing? Or the early church praying for a blessing and they get persecuted by the Jews, which causes the spread of the Christian church. But we always think blessing is a really, really nice thing. Now, when you get refined gold, a gold bar, remember I said a movie sticks in his pocket? Well, the next picture of a gold bar is that they weigh 12.4 kilograms per bar. So when you watch the movies and they're throwing gold around, just remember, one of those is 12 kilos. So the guy who picks it up, puts it in his pocket and then pushes a pallet load out of the plane? Nah, that's Hollywood. That's not real life. I want to talk a bit about becoming pure God, gold from legacy. And we're going to look a bit at the legacy of Jesus this morning. So if you've got your Bible there, if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 1, um, and there's a, a genealogy. And most of us, if you're like me, is that when I first started reading genealogies, I sort of script it because, you know, particularly if you're using, you know, the, the older version, good news for 16th century man, uh, that's the King James version, um, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so, you know how it goes like that? And most of us skip over it. And there's a whole genealogy of Jesus. And it starts with Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, Judah and his brothers. And then I want to jump down to verse 5. And this is the key for this morning. Salem, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, who was the mother, was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then it goes on right down to you get to the very end of verse 16 where it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. And I want to talk about some legacy in here this morning, about Jesus' legacy, what set Jesus up. And I'm going to look particularly at some of the generations. And I want to look particularly verse 5 and 6. And so what do we really know about Solomon, Rahab, and Boaz, and Ruth, and Obed, Jesse, David, and Bathsheba? And they're actually connected as a family line. And this is a really, really important part that I love about the genealogy because we actually have Bathsheba with David's big stuff up. And we have Rahab, who's referred to as Rahab the prostitute or the harlot in Jericho, in the direct lineage of Jesus. Go figure that. And, you know, not a lot of women mentioned in that, but there's three in this section. So Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Quite an amazing passage. So what do we know? We're going to start with King David, and, uh, and then we're going to work back up the lineage for a moment. And so if you want to flip over to 2 Samuel 11, we're going to read a few from here. And some of you will know this story really well. But I want to set this in time. This is about a thousand years before Jesus. This is part of Jesus' family tree. So think a thousand years before Jesus came. In the spring, this is verse, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole of the Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Very important. Where do the kings go at that time of season? Out to battle. Where's David? 
hanging at home, watching Netflix, chilling, while his team's out there doing the dirty work. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, she is Bathsheba. Now, my Jewish friend says, I'd never pronounce that right. It needs to be pronounced Bathsheba, which actually translates daughter of a promise. The name's very significant. Daughter of a promise. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent a message to her and she came to him and, she slept, and he slept with her. Now she was purified herself from her monthly uncleanliness. So she had menstruation, she cleansed herself and that was God's way of regulating hygiene. And then she went back to her home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, here's the king taking one of his leader's wife and now she's pregnant to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I can imagine that sinking feeling. What have I done? What have I done? And there's nowhere to hide this. This was going to be public knowledge. So then he decides to deal with it. And if you jump down to verse 14 and 15, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab to send it with Uriah. And uh, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fight is the fiercest, then withdraw from him. So he'll be struck down and die. So in between the text, he calls him home. And Uriah is a man of character who says, how can I sleep in my bed with my wife and my troops are sleeping out on the battlefield? So he doesn't go to bed with his wife because that was David's plan to cover it up. So he sleeps at the front of the door as a respect to his men. So David's plan for the cover-up didn't happen. So then his second thing is he sends a letter out and he says, put this bloke right at the front of the battle and withdraw so he cops it. And they did. And Uriah was killed in battle. Now, it might have appeared to be killed in battle, but in today's term, that is murder. It is intentional killing. It's murder. So now we've got David. He's committed adultery, got a woman pregnant, and tried to cover it up by lying, and then he conspired for murder. Do you think the king should go down big time? Yeah. Then if we go to verse 26, 27, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Then if you flip over to 2 Samuel 12, you'll find the story where Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David. And he said, your sin is not hidden. God knows it. I know it. And then David does this whole thing of repentance because he's been caught out. And Nathan comes with a message that as consequence, this child is not going to survive. And David then puts himself in sackcloth and ashes and he spends time praying because the baby's born and as soon as the baby's born, he beseeches God for his sin. And then the baby dies before the eighth day. 
Now, the eighth day is really significant because in Jewish culture, it's the mark of ownership of belonging to the people of Israel was circumcision. It happened on the eighth day. This kid died before he could actually be circumcised. And all the attendants come and go, We've got to, someone's got to break the news today. You tell him. No, 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 you tell him. No, 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 you tell him. And then David comes up and he says, the child's dead, the boy's dead, isn't he? And they said, yes. So he cleaned himself, bathed himself, ate, and then he worshipped God. And he said, I won't see that child again until I go to be with the child. A sense of certainty of faith that he had. And then out of that, during this process, and we don't know the timeline of it, he wrote the most amazing psalm that many of us know, Psalm 51. And I want to read that, but I want you to read it with me from the eyes of a man whose sin has been publicly caught out by God and the prophet and is broken. This comes from a position of brokenness. We often don't read it through the eyes of brokenness. So Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin's right before me, in my face, all the time. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. God, surely I was sinful at first, sinful from the time my mother can see me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop's like, a bit like rosemary. It's actually a form of rosemary that was used as an anesthetic and a cleansing agent. So clean me with the best thing we've got in our day. And I'll be clean. Wash me. And I'll be whiter than snow. And, and I didn't understand this until we went to the UK in midwinter. And to see fresh fallen snow compared to slushy snow on the side of the road. Man, there's nothing like white snow. Put one thing on it, it stands out like the proverbial. Cleanse me, whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy of gladness. Let my bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And then this often sung, often quoted, but from the eyes of brokenness, create in me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me because I'm so broken. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God. You who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, for my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. He's the king. How many offerings could he bought? Countless. 
But he just says, sacrifice is not what you delight in. Burn offerings is not what you delight in. What you delight in is a broken and contrite spirit. And the picture in this passage is that it's like a rock that's been hit with a hammer, not till it's shattered, but till it's broken down to dust. That's what a contrite heart is. That my heart is surrendered to be reground down to dust, put into God's reconstituted pottery wheel, and then reshaped. That's what he's saying. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in sacrifices of righteousness, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered to So what he's saying is that there's a place for sacrifices, but it's actually after he gets his heart right. The key to worship is actually the state of the heart. God delights in that more. Here's the point I want you to get. David's brokenness after his sin led him to God's grace. And his failure didn't define him. This is an important lesson we get because many of us define ourselves by our failures. David didn't define himself. I'm amazed that even after David committed adultery, lied, conspired, for murder, he's still described as a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, I find that encouraging. I find that encouraging because my sin is before me. My brokenness is before me. So how did David know the remedy of grace? I want to put you to this morning that came from legacy. It's no accident. A legacy in his family. So what do we know about David's legacy? His father is Jesse. And in 1 Samuel 16, 10, we're told that Jesse had seven sons that passed before Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen these. And then in 1 Samuel 16, 18, one of the servants answers, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior who speaks well. And he is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Jesse was a man who honoured God. Jesse taught his sons about God. His son played the lyre. They sang hymns and songs as part of their regular worship as a family. And where did Jesse get that from? We get it from David's grandfather, Obed. And, you know, it's interesting that David's grandfather... There's no story in the Bible about him, really, apart from the record of his birth to Ruth and Boaz, and his name is in the genealogy. And Obed means worshipper. So David's grandfather's name meant worshipper. Where did his father learn about worship? From his father. Where did David learn about worship? From his father and his grandfather. Quite amazing. And then there's a really profound hint in there, which is... Obed, parents were Boaz and Ruth. They were David's great-grandparents. And anyone who's looked at Ruth, and I think Ruth is going to be talked about next week probably, is that 
her love for her mother-in-law. She leaves her own people to go with her mother-in-law because her husband's dead. And she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be mine. So she makes this reckless abandonment to the Israeli faith of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then she discovers new love with Boaz. And when we look at Ruth, we'll see that Boaz was moved by Ruth's selflessness. And Boaz invites Ruth to glean grain from the field. And the whole story of Ruth, Ruth, four chapters, is a story of love and selflessness. And in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 to 16, it says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. What a great liturgy. But like all good stories, there's more. Let's go back one more level. Solomon Rahab, David's great, great grandparents. And if we started, remember I said we started with David about a thousand years before Jesus? The fall of Jericho was 1400 years before Jesus. So now, over these generations, we're scanning a period of approximately 400 years. I was thinking about that this morning. That's five and a half times of my lifetime thus far. That's old. Because I get asked, how you going? I say, I'm doing pretty good for an old guy. But when we read this, wow. And in Joshua chapter 2, what happens is, is the story of the Israelites checking out Jericho and they send spies to spy out the city. And Israel's reputation was well known. So the soldiers and the police were sussing out whether there are any spies and they're searching everywhere. And then Rahab takes in the two spies. And she helps the spies escape by lowering them out the window. So her house was that there was a double wall and there was accommodation in the wall. And so she was able to lower them out the window by a rope on the condition that when they conquered the city, they spared her. And they said, when we come to conquer, you tie a red cord out the window so we know it's your place. Do you think it's an accident it's red? If we fast backwards a little bit quickly, is the Israelites, before they left Egypt, remember the Passover? Kill a lamb, paint red blood on the posts and over the door, and the angel of death will overcome and pass that out. No accident on the colours. And when the city of Jericho fell, Rahab and her whole family were saved because of the agreement with the spies. And then they joined the Jewish people. And at the end of 
this story, a particular part, Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, it says this. It's really interesting. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the man Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among Israelites to this day. So not only was she spared, but she actually became part of God's chosen people and lived amongst them. And we know that she married Solomon, and then they had Boaz, and then we come down to David, and then we come all the way down to Jesus. Now, here's a thought. Rahab was a prostitute. She's listed in the Heroes of Faith in Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, it actually says this, by faith, Rahab, by faith, Rahab, she was a believer. She experienced grace. Let's imagine that for a moment. The grace she experienced, she passes on to her son, who passes to the next generation, who passes down to Obed, to Jesse, to David. So David actually understanding grace was no accident. It was embedded in his lineage. And even though he was broken, it was still embedded there. And when we come down to Jesus, and the gospel says Jesus was a friend of sinners. It's no accident. No accident at all. So I find in great encouragement from that genealogy, from a great-grandparent down to David. So what are the lessons for us today in this? I've got four lessons. Five lessons. should look at my notes. Five lessons. First lesson is this. You know, God's in the business of refining. He takes things that are impure and he turns them into gold. He's into transformation. Our failures can be a source of shame. They can be a source of unhealthy guilt and regret and condemnation and disqualification. Or they can become a source of grace and growth. Dan Siegel, one of the world's leading neuroscientists, he says that shame is an internal insidious process shame and unhealthy guilt shackles us to a past that reminds us and the devil hairy legs with his bent figures finger likes to point it out and go do you remember do you remember don't you forget this will you remember why because he wants us to be disqualified and unfortunately, many of us disqualify ourselves because of our brokenness and our stuff-ups of the past. And I'm not exempt. Harry Legs points his finger at me and says, how dare you get up and preach about this? If people knew about this sin in your life. But the fact is, in Jesus, we can tell him to get on his bike and go to hell. Can't we? Because grace covers a multitude of sins. It's covered. So the first lesson is don't let my brokenness and my failures 
be a source that binds me and restricts me. Let it be a source of grace and growth because that's part of our legacy. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren need to know that it's okay to be broken and to make mistakes and it's not beyond God's grace. There is always a way back with God. The only sin that can separate us from God is the rejection of Jesus. Nothing. David knew that. David knew that his adultery, his lying, his murder didn't separate him from God. But he had to live with the consequences. One of the difficult things as a counsellor, as I deal with people who have got shame that has become so insidious, it's in turned into self-hatred, self-blame, self-loathing. And I want to say they're really hard things to shift from a psychotherapy perspective. But from a theological perspective, it's a different ballgame. Second point this morning. The only thing to break the cycle of ungrace is grace. You know, it's really easy to get into cycles of patterns of revenge and hatred. But the only way we can actually break that stuff is by grace. I have it's a couple of friends or past friends who have done atrocious things in their marriages. And I would love to hurt them at times. But as I pray for them, I'm really mindful that what I'm praying for is their salvation. If they continue on the path that they're going, they're going to a Christless eternity. And I have to park my emotions sometimes and remind myself is that what they need more than anything else is to turn their hearts back to Jesus and to pray that prayer, create a clean heart in me, O oh God. Put a new right spirit in Because this is now not just about their behavior. This is about their eternity. And I've got to tell you, it's really hard to do that sometimes. But we've got to hold on to is that the pattern and the cycle of ungrace, there is a remedy for it. It's called grace. And if you're struggling in this area, I want to suggest to you, you go get Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. It will transform your understanding. Grace is based in unfairness. What is fair about Jesus living a perfect life and dying a brutal death and rising again for me? Nothing. And grace is based in unfairness. But somewhere in our brains, we've got this big hang-up that it's got to be fair. To the parents... The grandparents, the great-grandparents. This is my third one. My imperfection is what leaves room for God in my kids' and grandkids' lives. Too many of us beat ourselves up because we think we're failures and we're not doing the best thing for our kids. Well, if we were perfect, our kids wouldn't need Jesus. And in fact, very famous child psychotherapist Donald Winnicott said this. He said, perfect parents screw up their kids. That's what he says. A long time ago he said that. 
He said, what we need to be is good enough parents, and good enough parents get it right more than we get it wrong. We need to be good enough grandparents. We get it right more than we get it wrong. Let's throw this perfection thing right out and go, grace is not about perfection. It's about broken humanity that is striving to do our best, but know the cleansing and healing touch of Jesus. My fourth lesson this morning is that my legacy is not about my success or my failures. My legacy is about my relationship with God and imparting my experience of grace. I like to think of this. Um, you know, Sunday lunchtimes, a lot of people used to do roast. They generally don't do it these days. But you know when someone's cooking a roast and you walk into the house and the aroma of a roast... Oh, especially pork, you know, and the crackling's done really well and there's pumpkin and potatoes and roasted onions and uh, chucking a bit of asparagus, all right? That smell, we're called to have a life that has an aroma of grace. That's our legacy. Our legacy it's not about a success or failure. It's about relationship with God, state of the heart, and an aroma of grace. So that our kids and our grandkids, and many of us would probably testify that part of being here today might have been because we had grandparents who actually shared faith with us, grandparents who prayed for us. Or for some of us who didn't have that, surrogate grandparents and surrogate parents who stood in the gap and prayed for us. Let me just share a little bit of one research, which is the longest research in the world. It's called the Marty University Study here in Brisbane. It's a longevity study. And so a long, long time ago, they took 6,000 pregnant mums and surveyed them. And then they followed out of that 4,000. And what they did was they scaled the mums on a category of category one, which was, you know, very affluent family, to category four, single mums, low socioeconomic and everything against them. And then they did benchmark research on the kids, checking at age 7, age 14, age 21. And I was speaking on a parent night about this, and the guy on the sound desk said to me, I'm one of those kids, and they're actually following up with my kids. And they found a disproportionate number of kids on level 4 doing really well. And so the researchers said, we have to look at this. And you know what they found? They had one person in their life who believed in them. A grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, a teacher, a youth group leader. They had one person in their life who believed in them. Isn't that legacy? The aroma of grace. The aroma of grace is what we've got apart as a legacy. And I think Rahab understood that. Because she experienced firsthand and she imparted it to her son, who imparted it to his son, to the next son, to the next son, down to David. So that when David stuffed up, he still knew where to go, to grace. Here's my last point. This is a Peter Janetsky-ism. God draws straight lines with bent sticks. And I say to people all the time, just ask narrowly. She'll tell you how bent I really am. I'm a bent stick. Anyone else here a bent stick? Yeah. But God picks it up. And draw straight lines because it's not about the stick. It's about the hand that holds the stick that draws straight lines. Yeah. 
And God's grace is, I'm going to take a bent stick and draw straight lines. I'm going to take a bent stick named Peter Janetsky, a kid who grew up in a housing commission estate with a disordered mother, and I'm going to touch people's lives. It's not about me. It's about what God has done. It's straight lines, bent sticks. The hand that holds it makes all the difference. God's in the refining business. Grace breaks the cycle of ungrace. My imperfection is what leaves room for grace and for God in my kids' and my grandkids' lives. My legacy is not about success or failures. It's about relationship with God and the aroma of grace because I'm a bent stick that God holds and draws straight lines. We're called to be a people of a legacy. We're called to be people of a legacy in family. And, and I know that not everybody has connection with their families. And Beck and Matt and the boys are just the joy of our life. And we're engaged with that. But I'm also aware that Neralee and I are surrogate parents and surrogate grandparents to others. Because that's what we have to be as a community. Being a legacy is much bigger than just my immediate family. This morning, I'm going to pray for all of us. And then there's going to be a response time afterwards. But I'm going to ask you to stand. I, I want you, everybody to stand. I'm going to pray for us that we'll be a people of legacy. We'll be a people of grace. I want to pray a blessing over you. Father God, thank you for the richnesses of that genealogy from Rahab down to David. And thank you, that's only just a, a little window into that whole genealogy down to Jesus. And that the genealogy that goes beyond that, that he was the firstborn and he is our big brother. And that we're part of that lineage too. And Lord, whether we're standing here as great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, or parents-to-be in the future, would you give us an overwhelming sense of grace? Would you let our lives be filled with an aroma of grace? That when we get stuck in self-condemnation and blame, that you would whisper, it's done, it's finished in Jesus. Don't buy into that. Lord, I want to pray as a church family that people would look and go, what is it with you guys? You're strange. And we'd be able to point to them and say, yes, the sins are passed to the third and fourth generations, but the blessings of God are 10,000 generations. Help us to be a people of your blessing to one another, to our community, and to our families. This morning, Lord, I commit myself and my brothers and sisters to you as hard as it is to say, please transform and refine me to be that aroma of grace so that for my great-great-grandkids I can look down from heaven and say I influence them. Be with us and bless us, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.